due to causes and conditions. Depending on your perspective, you may be the cause or one of the conditions. We come here to practice so a teacher appears. Tonight, this dream's main attraction is Gilbert Gutierrez. Gilbert is one of five lay Dharma heirs of Venerable Chan Master Shen Yin, and the only one to teach in North America. Gilbert teaches in a very casual and accessible yet deep manner, drawing on everyday life situations as well on the works of great masters. He is an attorney practicing in Riverside, California, and studied various forms of meditation, martial arts, Qigong, and yet states that nothing he has studied comes close to matching the simplicity and the beauty of the practice of Chan. Throughout his practice, Gilbert sought a master who was truly worthy of following. He found that in Venerable Master Shen Yan. He is deeply grateful for having had the opportunity to study under Master Shen Yan and hopes that one day he may be able to display even 1% of the wisdom and compassion that his master possessed. Join Holmes. Bob. Good, we were waiting for you. I was waiting for What's that? I said you timed it perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, tonight's lecture is going to be searching for the roots of uh, Chinese uh, Chan Buddhism. Um, and the, the word Chan is a word that um, comes from a Sanskrit word of Dhyana, uh, which uh, means to practice. Dhyana um, was also, uh, or actually, uh, Chan was uh, was adopted in Japan and changed to the word Zen. Um, the we're not going to talk tonight about the the Japanese Zen, although it came uh, migrating from from China when China sent some pilgrims to Japan, and Japan sent some some pilgrims to to China to learn. Um, and they uh, developed uh, their form of Zen, which is similar to Chan, but uh, has certain political and cultural differences to it. Today what we want to do is go back in time as to finding out where uh, Chan came from. It's funny because we start studying and we come to a center and they tell us to cross our legs and to don't think about anything or stop our thoughts and then we sit here and we have no idea where this all came from. We have an idea that it came from Shakyamuni Buddha and Buddhists but we don't know how it got got to, to here in terms of a practice and I think it's important because of the fact that if we don't uh, understand these aspects of our of our um, uh, discipline we are operating in in an ignorance as to how this all fits in and where it fits in and if a Theravadan person told you you're not practicing the real practice you wouldn't even know what to say back to them 
Not that that's bad, or, or I'm going to say some things to distinguish Theravadan from from the Mahayana practice tonight, but it's not that I I have a discrimination against Theravadans, although some Theravadans have a distinct discrimination against Chan, uh, the Chan school, and any school emanating that didn't originate in Indios as they perceive it. Um, but it's important to understand the differences and then how what we're practicing now, how it was uh, uh, came to being. The um, John did come from, shared its uh, originations with the Theravadan school and um, its heart of Chan is the Mahayana practice, which we'll explain um, a little bit further on. And it's like a diamond that originated in India, but it was forged uh, through the Madhyamika school, um, which uh, began in India, but then came to, to China. It was uh, clarified by the Yogacara school, uh, consciousness only, and also the Abhidharma school, in terms of, of uh, drawing from those incredible roots of, of those particular schools. It is a brother to the Huayen school and the Tiantai school, um, and the Vajrayana schools, which are uh, the little brother, uh, which is uh, the Tibetan school. Uh, it also has ties to the uh, Amitabha school uh, of the Pure Land. And it follows essentially the same foundational principles as the Theravads uh, do. We, we have the idea of the, the Eightfold Path, the, uh, the uh, Four Noble Truths, for instance, uh, the Buddha, the Dharma, uh, the Sangha, all of those things are there. But it has been what I would call gone through a metamorphosis in terms of its um, its practice from the time that Shakyamuni Buddha uh, began teaching, and it went through kind of a, a natural progression. I, I can't really say it's an evolution, um, and it certainly isn't what Theravada think is as a corruption of the school, but it is taking something that's there and looking into it and, and really distilling it and, and working with it and coming up with an incredible, wonderful practice that we see comes from the Mahayana school. Mahayana means greater vehicle, means the, the higher practice, let's say. Um, Hinayana, which is no longer politically correct to describe Theravadans, is a lesser vehicle. You can understand why they didn't want to be called the lesser vehicle. Um, and the distinct difference between the two is that in the Hinayana practice, one is, is concentrating more on uh, reaching nirvana, where in the Mahayana practice, there is the idea of delivering all sentient beings. And again, we'll go into that a little bit later on, but this is kind of the start to see where we're at. Um, and Chan is kind of like a distillation of all these various schools and still remaining true to the essence of Buddhism. And what I wanted to start with today, see if I can find it, 
um, is a little passage, hopefully I can come across it. This is something before the, the Buddha became a Buddha. Very interesting. And this comes uh, from the, what was called the Buddha Karita, and it was uh, a uh, description of the Buddha um, before his enlightenment and after his enlightenment. And this particular uh, um, text was one which was more kind of dealing with with let's say moral uh, issues rather than very deep philosophical issues just saying you have to be a very good citizen um, but the importance is not in in this particular text as 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 it is as it relates to Chan but this particular passage where Shakyamuni is sitting um, and this is before he's left the um, the palace, and he has these questions about what was going on and what he had seen. And some of you know the story that he had gone through the town and he had seen old age, sickness, and death for the first time, and it was very shocking to him. So he wanted to figure this out. He wanted to find out what this all meant, and so he sat down to meditate never knowing really maybe how to meditate. Perhaps there was some training that he received from from the yoga, uh, yoga school uh, in terms of how to meditate, but not this kind of a real static meditation. When I say static, meaning that not body movement or anything, that, or just sitting. So here he is, and he's sitting. And, and I'll read you this in, in total because I think it's, it's very interesting. There he sat on the clean ground, you can hear me, can you? Um, where the soft grass glittered like beryl. Contemplating birth and death of beings, he undertook to steady his mind in meditation. In no time his mind became firm. He was released from mental distractions, such as desire for objects of sense, and attained the first trance of calmness, which was characterized by non-defilement and accompanied by distinct cognition and reflection. Having acquired the concentration of mind, which springs from solitude, the prince was filled with extreme joy and bliss. Then meditating on the course of the world, he thought that this state was indeed supreme. Alas, wretched is he who, out of ignorance and blindness of pride, ignores a others and who are distressed by old age, sickness, and death, though he himself, being likewise subject to disease, old age, and death, is helpless. And thus he perceived clearly the evils of disease and old age and death in the world and the false pride in self arising from a belief in one's strength in youth and life left him instantly he became neither excited nor distressed, free from doubt, sloth, drowsiness. 
he was unaffected by sensual pleasures and touched by hatred, untouched by hatred or contempt of others. While this passionless, pure insight of the great-souled one grew, a man in mendicant clothes approached him without being seen. The prince asked, Tell me, who are you? The man replied, Oh, best of men, I am a mendicant who in fear of birth and death has renounced the world for the sake of deliverance. In this world, which is characterized by destruction, I eagerly search for the blessed and indestructible state. I regard both kinsmen and strangers as equals, and I am free from the evils of passion arising from objects of sense. Living wherever I happen to be, at the foot of a tree in a deserted house, in the mountains or in the woods, I wander about living on the alms I receive without ties to person or place and no expectation save for the attainment of the ultimate goal. Saying this, the mendicant flew away as a prince watched. The latter knew what he should do and began thinking on the way to leave his home. John was right there, even before uh, the Buddha's enlightenment. He was, that's how he, he gained entry to even to begin to understand and develop the beginnings of prajna, of wisdom, that he's there. And also in this passage, we have the mendicant appearing. And so we have the idea of help people who are helpful, helpful to others and, and teaching. So we already have this idea of, of, of what we would say is uh, a bodhisattva ideal. And we'll talk about bodhisattva a, a little bit later, but this is important because this is at the beginning. This is not something that's occurring in China, but this is occurring before the Buddha's enlightenment, that he's already learning how to meditate, already how to, to do this. So the idea of Chan school being outside of this uh, uh, practice is nonsense. It was right there, right from the very beginning. And another point, let me see if I can find it here. was that when he became enlightened, he, at first he thought, oh, you know, this is, this is too deep and I, I don't think I can, I can teach um, this to, to, to human sentient beings. And at that time, a, a God appeared to him and told him, oh, don't think that way because you're needed. You really need to, to, to pass this on to, to the human realm. And, and please, you know, stay and, and do that. And again, this is very interesting because it really sets forth this idea of this principle of delivering others. And it's very, very important because it wasn't something that simply, oh, he could reach a nirvanic state and then simply go away. 
and not be bothered by by uh, practicing here or teaching others to how to practice. These are key principles in in the, in the very early part of Shakyamuni Buddha's life that point to later on what will become Mahayana uh, Buddhism. Now. The idea of initially in the practice of Buddhism, the ultimate goal uh, in, from the people who were practicing in India was to attain nirvana. And by attaining nirvana, they were they were free from 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 suffering, and so they were taught the four noble truths. And that's as pretty much as far as as the the Theravadins went with this is this this idea of of this practice the there was a, quite a bit of a stress on on moral and um, uh, teachings of the Buddha and spiritual teachings of the Buddha um, and the idea of the metaphysical side of the Mahayana practice that would come later was absent at this point and this was something that uh, there was the Buddha Karita that uh, called the Deeds of the Buddha that was written around uh, first century uh, um, AD or CE and written by uh, Avagosha. And in this, what Avagosha was doing was was striving for this like this lowest common denominator in terms of being able to to market. Um, Buddhism, and it's very interesting because at the time that Buddhism was coming into in, into the the world in the seventh and fifth between the seventh and the fifth century, it was a wonderful place in northern India because in northern India, especially in northwest India, in the um, uh, the Indo Aryan Valley, and there was also what you, you might have heard is a Silk Road, the Silk Road that went from from actually from the eastern part of Europe all the way through to China. And literally it went that way there from Afghanistan and even north of Afghanistan and from the Arabic countries. There was a route that one would take all the way through and into India and then ultimately into the the, the uh, some of the um, western valleys of of, uh, of China, and that route brought many things. Not only just uh, uh, products from other countries and trading products, but trading philosophies, trading understandings that were there. And from this point of of, of view, we had Greek philosophers that were were there. We had the the Arabic people and, and the Muslim um, uh, practice that was there. Um, the Hebrews had their prophets. China had Confucianism. There was Zarathustra uh, uh, from from the, the Persian side that was also there. Zoroastrians were there. So many different types of, of religions and concepts that were intermingling and, and working uh, 
in, in this area. And there was this cross-fertilization of many different types of, of concepts. This is now 500 years, 700 years before Christ. So we, we're not even talking about Christianity at this point. But there was all of this happening. And then comes Shakyamuni Buddha. And he gets thrown into the mix. And it's an interesting thing because his approach was different. Where we had pantheistic, uh, multiple god religions, monotheistic religions, single god religions, were coming up and all of a sudden there's no god. And, and Shakyamuni Buddha is not espousing that there is this god that's controlling everything. People stop and go, hmm, this is interesting. Tell me more about this. And the more that they heard about it, the more it it made sense. No self. I can I, I can be delivered from suffering. That makes sense. It's very easy. No, all you had to do is work with the four noble truths, and it was very simple to propagate um, the the Buddhist religion. So in all of these religions that were coming up, all of a sudden Buddhism springs up, and we have a time in which. The, uh, there was uh, the Upanishad sages that were there, but their religion was very, very, um, very dry, very, very, not very promising in many different ways. And, and so Buddhism came in with this fresh view. The Vedics were on their way out as well. And all of a sudden, Buddhism comes in there. And through all of these systems that they had, you'd say, um, that they had their own systems, their own beliefs, uh, doctrines, rules of conduct, and rules and, and ideas of gaining salvation, comes Buddhism with this very simple uh, formula. And it took real great hold in that there was a, a place called the state of Bihar in the eastern part of the Uttar Padres, which would be more towards the eastern side of, of, of India, northeastern side of India or central. And um, during during that time period it it obtained various sponsors that helped it and uh, people who would help move it along. The where Shakyamuni Buddha started was uh, with the Shakya clan that was close to the Himalayas, but it was along this road that enabled uh, Buddhism to grow very, very quickly. And um, and one of the other things that was happening during this time period was that there was no longer these little feudal areas of, of pockets of people that control just a small area but it was turning into larger states and so using these larger states then the, the leaders fostered and encouraged this, uh, the, the Buddhist religion and so enabled it to, to, to grow more.
again, I mentioned about the Upanishads and and how the the problem with them was that um, they their religion wasn't one which was very appetizing, and, and especially to the in intellectuals, and and so the intellectuals were looking for something more. So they kind of revolted against a sterile type of sacrificial cult of Brahmins, and they decided, okay, this the Buddhism made more sense. So so it got a big boost from the from the upper intellectual class. Um, From the very beginning, Shakyamuni Buddha taught the middle way in what he did. He, um, he taught that one should not be totally without, like the ascetics, or one should not embrace richness, but one should, should be middle in everything that they do. And this was a very, very key point, and a key point of fertilization in the Mahayana and later on, you will see this, as being embraced. I had mentioned that there were certain people that were sponsors. There was one particular um, uh, ruler, his name was Oshaka. And Oshaka um, was a, a ruler that was kind of shocked by the carnage he had set into motion by, by uh, becoming the ruler of, of a large, larger state. And he embraced Buddhism, and um, he was very much responsible for the spread of Buddhism, uh, even to Ceylon. His son became um, a Buddhist monk, and um, they were um, um, uh, spreading Buddhism. And also, he sponsored uh, one of the councils of, of the Buddhists. There were three councils in which Buddhism was. The doctrine of Buddhism was was established after Shakyamuni's death, and the first council came very shortly after uh, Shakyamuni's uh, death. The next one came a hundred years later, and I think the next one came about a hundred years after that. But these councils were put together in a way in which that people were laid out what they had heard, so that they could develop a record of all that what Shakyamuni um, said. This is why the Theravadans, they are very protective of this because they believe this is what the Buddha taught. And actually there's a book exactly by that name, what the Buddha taught. And that's why it's named what the Buddha taught. It's saying whatever ever sutras that came after that are not what the Buddha taught. But it isn't as easy as that because a lot of the Theravadan sutras also were written a few hundred years after the Buddha's death. So we can't really say exactly that all of those were his exact words. We don't have a recording that says what he, what he said. Here, you know, I'm stuck, whatever I say. If I say something and I mess up, then you know, this is what Gilbert said. How do you know? Because it's recorded. But then they didn't have that. So, so there's a, a looseness there, but still the Theravadans wanted to protect this as, a, as their discrete teachings of the Buddha. This is where the problem came into being because in the second council that was there, 
there was a major break in the the uh, the teachings, um, and part of it had to do with Vinaya, meaning the rules of conduct in Theravada um, practice. There's what they call the triple basket, the Tripitaka, uh, which is the what the Buddha uh, sutras were, the Vinaya, the rules of conduct of monks, and then there is the Abhidharma, which is a system of how to understand mind. It was a very incredible, incredible system. The Vinaya had to do with what monks can do and they can't do. And they were actually, during that council, arguing over some very trite matters of, of, of what even monks could eat or, or different things. But there was also these doctrinal differences that arose as well, which gave rise to a splinter group coming in, which was called the Mahasangitas. Now, Sangha means the, the Sangha, the, the, the monks. And Maha means the highest. So you can imagine the Mahasangitas, what they thought of themselves. They were the highest. And so the Theravadans said, you can't get away with that, because they weren't Theravadans yet. So they came up with the word Theravadans. And so they said, we're going to call ourselves Theravadans. And that was the teaching of the elders. So you can see now there's a little bit of a split. One group is saying that this is the highest teachings. They're the highest teachers. And the others are saying, we're the oldest teachers. We're the ones that really carry the flame. So by around the 3rd century BC, the Theravadan doctrine was pretty much locked in in terms of how they, how they uh, um, have in, established in terms of their foundational principles. Not much change during that whole time period since from then to now, and they pride themselves greatly, although I don't think that's how they're proud. But they, they really hold and protect that and say, this is the teachings. And sometimes you, you find, like, I ran into a Theravadan monk that was, he knew that I, I was um, a, um, a Chan uh, instructor, and he was quite abrupt with me. And quite, and, and I knew why he was doing that. I knew because they just were kind of poo-poo, you know, you're, you're, you're from the Chan school. You know, that's, that's not really Buddhism. And they, they looked that way. Actually, Master Shen Yang ran into that problem once at a university where he bowed to this one Theravadan monk and the monk didn't bow back. And then he walked again and saw him and, and he bowed again and the monk didn't bow back to him. And finally he tracked the monk down and he sat him down on a bench and said, why didn't you do that? He goes, oh, because you're, you're, you're not really a monk. You're, even though they both had robes on, you're not really a monk. I'm not. And he says, no, you know, you, you don't teach, you know, Buddhism. I don't. I said, do you follow, do you tell me, does the Theravans follow the Four Noble Truths? Yes. The Five Precepts? Yes. The Eightfold Path? Yes. And he went through a whole list of things and the monk said, yes. He goes, so do we. So we're brothers. And so the, the monk thought a little bit and then he bowed. And they, and so a, a little 
corner of ignorance was removed. Um, but I bring this up because not to, to say us against them, but an understanding in terms of where Chan comes from. It does come from the teachings of the Buddha. And it, it, it was migrating um, in this time period through the Silk Road over to, to China. So the, we can trace back even some of the earliest Chan experiences to Mahakasyapa. Anybody know who Mahakasyapa is? Nobody? Remember the, the Buddha twirled a flower? And Mahakasyapa just smiled. And it was the first transmission mind to mind. What does that mean? Don't worry about it. It, it. it was something that occurred, an understanding beyond words. And this was a key point, because that's what Chan is. Chan is this understanding beyond words, and we'll get to that in, in a moment too. Um, So during the, the early formative stages of Buddhism, um, there was this bridge to the Mahayanas. The first ones that started, other than the, uh, well, we'll talk about Mahasangitas, but the Sarvastidians, they, they came about at that time, and they stressed an absence of the, the real entity or self and um, and Anatman, which is no transmigration of souls. Um, and they maintained that the ultimate reality was like a chain of events, like links made up uh, in phenomenal being or object, which is the very beginning of the 12 causal links. And their idea was that, ah, oh, no, there's not this self there. It, it's, it, there's no self, so they're stressing this a little bit more. This was a little bit more of a stress versus the uh, the, the Theravadan's concept of, of everything real and and this this uh, attainment of nirvana. And an, another group came up at this time. They were called the Sautrantikas, and the Sautrantikas, their subset, they emphasize the atomic nature of the component elements of, of the chain of, of causation, what all that means is it's almost like quantum physicists. And this is something you were talking about earlier um, uh, with Mike, where it's just like these dot, 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 you just these microparticles in terms of looking at everything in this way and realizing that if you break it all down, break it all down, break it all down, to, to the atomic and subatomic, there's nothing there. And so they were looking at things from that viewpoint and in terms of negating the idea of, of uh, a life and being as well and, and reality as we perceive it. So these are like the, some very baby stages in terms of, of looking at what concept do you think they're, they're pointing towards? Emptiness. Emptiness, good. So you're paying attention, good. 
and emptiness. This is, you see, these are just little baby steps towards all of that, where they're looking at it. It's very interesting in terms of what's happening in, 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 in all of this. And then we talked about the, the Maha uh, Sangitas who were the first to break away. And they were really the ones who were looking at it and saying, well, no, we don't really think that this is all real. You know, you guys say it's all real. And we're saying, no, I don't think, we don't buy into that. You know, we're not really completely sure what it is, but it's not real. And, um, but Buddhas, on the other hand, they're real. And so the enlightened ones, their manifestation of the, the Buddhas is, is a true state. So they're looking at it and trying to poke around and say, well, we can't say nothing's real because the Buddha's there. We're not quite sure about it, but we know that you're not real. But the Buddha's real. That's as far as we've got so far. We're going to keep working on it. And that's kind of where they're at. It's a really interesting time period because all this stuff is happening. And the Theravadins are meanwhile are, are circling the wagons and saying, no, this is, this is our teaching. We're the elders. And, and we don't want, you know, anything, you know, to, to corrupt this understanding. We've had it here since, you know, um, uh, 200 years from the, from the Buddha's death. We've got this doctrine here. And it goes all the way back to him. And we know that this is the truth. And whatever you're coming up with is heresy. It's not, it's not the true teachings. And during this time period from the Middle East, it's possible that the Gnostic doctrines uh, of direct realization were also pollinating the, the teachings as well. Gnostic being this direct realization. And actually, it made a real strong push in Christianity for a while. But it got beat out by the uh, half-human, uh, half-God uh, construct of Jesus Christ. Where before they were talking about the, not, the Gnostics were kind of moving in towards that, that area. But it wasn't as marketable. It was kind of like um, what was happening before. It was too intellectual uh, for that time period. And so they... the. Christians, in terms of establishing their doctrine, relied on the the tried and true um, methods of of uh, a half uh, half God, half uh, human uh, construct that worked with the uh, Romans, the Greeks, the Turks, and so, and they were right. Um, The thing about Buddhism that, that struck people during that time period was that it had this altruistic system of morality. And the idea of the altruistic part is important because the altruistic part is that it was the beginning of the, the idea of being a bodhisattva, of doing things not for yourself or not to attain anything, but because it was right, that, that it helped everyone. And so this idea of morality that we did, it, it wasn't like for us, just for ourselves, but it was for, for everything. And in some ways, that was probably a good connector piece when it ultimately went over to China, because it mixed very well 
with the idea of, of Confucianism, who were looking at a perfected self and the Tao of this way of, of being better, this fused in really, really well. But you could say that Buddhism, as it got, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but Buddhism, as it got to China, probably influenced more Confucianism and, and the Taoist than it, it was influenced. It, it got into a readily accessible market there in, in China, and then pushing way ahead, where later on there was kind of a pushback from, from the Neo-Taoist. Because then the Neo-Daoists then started seeing how strong the Buddhism was. There was even one of the masters that wrote, do not, do not uh, debate with the Buddhists. They will confuse you to no end. <laughs> because Buddhists, especially, now this is where Chan is coming in, and, and I'll explain a little bit more too in terms of it, were good at debating. So we'll, we'll see how that comes along in a moment. By the way, if anybody has a question, you're certainly welcome to ask your questions. So this idea of the altruistic system of morality was the first step leading to the um, Mahayana greater vehicle practice. We talked already about the Tripitaka and the, uh, and the, the three, and, and the one that was there um, that was important at that point was the Abhidharma that was created by the Theravadans. And the Abhidharma was a, um, it was written by uh, Buddhaghosa. It's an incredible schematic of how mind works. It's very difficult, it's very tedious when you first read it because you bounce right off of it. It's not easy to understand at all, but it's an incredible, incredible schematic. If somebody was to develop something and say how mind works and why this thought is there and why these thoughts are related, it's a masterpiece and, and it's worth studying. But it's very, very difficult in the beginning and as you go along it becomes smoother. Um, it's kind of like what Shifu talked about, the practice, it's like chewing um, a, a stalk of cane. In, in, in the beginning it's very rough going and it's not too sweet, but as you keep going and going it becomes sweeter and sweeter till you get to the heart of it. Um, the Theravadans also produced what was called the Path of Purification from uh, Visu uh, Dimaga and uh, questions of King Meander uh, and these were doctrinal texts, which are actually still very good and, and still study, especially Path of Purification. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that or not. No? Wow. Okay, if you'd been bounced into a Theravadan place, that would be the first text that you'd pick up. And, and those texts are, are very, very good, very, very detailed. Um, and the questions of King Meander were a little bit more palatable towards the masses, and they were just questions that the king would raise uh, to ask about about the practice uh, to Shakyamuni Buddha, and, and would be given uh, responses back. It's a lot easier. Path of purification is pretty good. Um, so. We've moved from a point where 
we're in the first century uh, AD, second century AD, that um, that we've got this kind of a pietistic approach to Buddhism um, and dealing with morality um, and and stressing this kind of um, more moral teachings. Um, but from that, we began to see that there was the beginning of the Eightfold Path, the Twelve, 12 Causal Links, Right Understanding, Right View were the key to this con concept. And this was the segue, this was the transition into Mahayana. Um, and um, To the Mahayanas, the Theravadans, they, they carefully guarded their doctrine as being the true teachings. And so when they say these are the true teachings and Mahayanas are coming up with some novel ideas in terms of that, how were they able to overcome the claim of the Theravadans, which already have they already have their flag up saying, this is the true teachings. So whatever you're talking about. It's not really the true teachings. So, so while they acknowledge and they said, yeah, you know what? Your teachings are true. We don't dispute that. But our teachings are the ultimate and advanced final teachings of the Buddha. And so we're pushing the envelope out further as the Shakyamuni Buddha and his later teachings pushed it out further. In the beginning, he just gave the things palatable to the masses, the Four Noble Truths. But then he started working further out. And so there was the development of other other sutras. Now there's um, different sutras that come up at this point, which are called the Tathagatha Garbha Sutras. And these sutras are very, very important. Um, does anybody know what Tathagatha Garbha means? Nobody. Okay. The Tathagatha is a name called Thus Come One for the for the Buddha. Garba means womb. And the idea of the Tathagatha Garba is this Buddha womb or Buddha essence of all things. Not a womb in which there is a fetus within it, but a womb that houses everything. And that, that was an important concept, an advancement in terms of, of uh, the Mahayana uh, doctrine. So, what comes up now is, is uh, that Mahayana comes up and it produces not just Buddha, but Buddhas in the sutras and also the concept of a bodhisattva. The concept of a bodhisattva comes up in the early text in around, uh, um, uh, almost around the time of Christ, uh, in 100 AD, uh, one, 1 AD to 100 AD, and all of a sudden we start seeing, for instance, the Lotus Sutra. And the Lotus Sutra, I think chapter 25, is about about Avalokiti Swara. Anybody know who Avalokiti Swara is? 
Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, or Kuan Yin Pusau, the Chinese would say, all of a sudden, this Avalkitiswara, with the name means the one that hears the the suffering from from high up, um, or the one high up that hears the suffering, um, is now something that's a different notion in the practice. Theravadins had used the concept of a bodhisattva, but only in reference to pre-Buddha Shakyamuni and saying that at that time period he was a bodhisattva. He was an enlightened being moving towards becoming a Buddha. And um, so so now with the Mahayana uh, teachings, the sutras are coming in, the Mahaparinirvana Sutra as well uh, comes in, and they begin to teach different things. Um, also in the Lotus Sutra, the notion of emptiness is coming in. In the um, Queen Shramala's Lion's Roar Sutra that comes in, uh, we get the idea of of avidya of this um, which is this fundamental ignorance um, which is called nascent entrenchment um, this nascent entrenchment is this deep ignorance that has to be pulled out so that or seen so that one um, can remove all of the vestiges of the self many things are happening at this point and these sutras are being used and they're saying these were the final sutras these sutras are the ones that that, that are leading to to these notions of that are stressed by the Mahayana that were not stressed by the Theravadins that were supported then in terms of of what their their uh, their position is and as we, we got to that um, we, we get to the development that, that we have a wisdom that's coming up, a prajna paramita, but not just prajna paramita, which is this, this, this deep wisdom, but maha prajna paramita, which is a highest developed wisdom, which is transcendent wisdom. And this is a, a notion, important notion, or development in the practice that we get to the point where there's this transcendent wisdom, this wisdom that's beyond the idea of words and phrases, one that's, that is a direct realization or di direct experience. And what it does in this time period is it fine-tunes the Eightfold Path. So actually the Eightfold Path has two extra components to it. It's actually um, the first, uh, it, it has uh, a nine and a ten to it. And in the Eightfold Path, it has the right view, but it also has the right view realized, which I've, I've talked to you before uh, about the right view realized, meaning a direct experience of the right view. And so, in the, the Eightfold Path, there's this transcendent wisdom that's there. And the tenth is, is that then that leads to complete enlightenment. So, so these are components that all of a sudden that the Mahayanas are putting in 
and making changes to to the practice. How was this going around? How did they get to that point? It's very very interesting. Um, the well, before I get there, let me talk about in terms of the Theravadins, their their viewpoint was is that one could be an arhat, and arhat that's good because that means that you're going to go to nirvana. I, I remember once I was at a retreat, uh, one of the first retreats I attended with with Master Shen Yang, and I was talking to him about my experiences, and he said, "Hmm." With those experiences, you can become an arhan, or he would say a lohan. And I thought, that's good. That's good till I realized he was insulting me. <laughs> he was telling me, you're only practicing for yourself, you're not practicing for others. So he, so, um, the only compliment I think I got from him that <laughs> was an insult. Um, but but the idea was is that that we practice for more than just ourselves, and that's this was a very pivotal point. That's why the idea of the bodhisattva coming into play was very very important. And um, so so at that point they were looking at Theravadins and kind of putting them down, saying, "Well, you guys are." You guys are selfish, you know, we have the right way. You have the lesser vehicle, we have the higher vehicle. And so there was this battle between the two of them in terms of it. But they, this was a battle like a championship of a basketball, you know, championship. The best two teams, they had good people on both sides to, to battle with it. And, and that was important because in terms of, of being able to battle philosophically about these issues, you really needed to bring some big guns in. What happened is, is that Mahayana had a really big gun, and that was Nagarjuna. And Nagarjuna developed the middle way, what was called Madhyamika. And the Madhyamika school was a very interesting school in in its ability to to uh, analyze and to refute, and it used a method called prasanga, uh, and there was actually a subset of the Madhyamika school called the prasangitas, and the prasangitas would look at things and refute them, so they could refute the idea of time, or the idea of body, or whatever that was put before them, they could reduce it, they used what was called the notion of reducio absurdium. And the reducio absurdium is a concept where you take something out to its most illogical extreme and then boom, you just drop it off. Because it, it's no longer supportable. So for instance, if you took the idea and say, time exists, then you'd say, well, if time exists, and if the time, then what about the past time? Well, that's the past. Well, but that's past. What about the future? You can't divide the time. So, so it would go through and knock out everything in a very eloquent way. And this gave the, the, um, the Madhyamika school an incredible power. Because if you put it before a Confucius practitioner, or a Confucian practitioner, or a Taoist, or a Theravadan, it would cut right through it. 
And this is where we get the idea of this diamond sword that cuts through things because they were using wisdom. They weren't, they weren't using contrived things. They were actually using wisdom to look at it and, and, and make their arguments. That's why when it gets to, to Chan, it's so powerful because it's been forged by all these battles and it's cutting, 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 cutting through, through any illusion. Very interesting thing that happened after that because in order to be able to support these positions that of of this Buddha nature um, that now is coming up, where before Theravadins didn't talk about Buddha nature or the Buddha essence, the Mahayana school is emphasizing the idea of Buddha nature, and and so in order to do that, then they there was the construct of the the Dharmakaya, Sambhukaya, Nirmanakaya. The, the Dharmakaya being everything, this, the essence of the, the Buddha nature, which would be the Tathagathagarbha, the Buddha womb. Alongside the Madhyamika school that was going on, there was a Yogacara school. And the Yogacara school called that the Alaya Vijnana, the Eighth Consciousness. So if any of you have ever dealt with the Yoga Chara School, anybody have any knowledge of the Yoga Chara School? <sighs> so anyway, the Yoga Chara, Chen Wei Shu Lin. Do you know the, how do you say it in Chinese? Consciousness only school. Even some Chinese should know Chen Wei Shu Lin. Even though I can't pronounce it right. Chen Wei Su Consciousness only. So the consciousness only school was very important. Consciousness only school. She said just like me, but they understand it. <laughs> so that's the hidden Chinese trick. Only they can understand their, and, and say their own language. Yes. <laughs> so, so anyway, just so you understand, it's the consciousness only, Yogacara school. So this school comes up along with the Madhyamika school. And they're saying consciousness only. Madhyamika school is saying it's not real. Theravada Abhidharma said it's real, and, the, and Madhyamika said it's not real, but it's not like it's not not real. It it's real, but not real. And the way they did that is what they did was they it went towards absolutism that does not it negates real and negates not real. So it's the middle way, somewhere in between those which doesn't discount real or unreal. This moment is real, but it's illusory. And to a Madhyamika practitioner, they would understand that and say, yes, it is happening, but it's not real, it's transitory, it's impermanent. And the basic principle behind all of that was called Pratika Samapada. Does anybody know what that is? 
causes and conditions. Causes and conditions never fail. So Pratikapada was an important aspect of the the um, the Mahayana school from the very beginning, from Madhyamika. Causes and conditions never fail. So that was incorporating why it was real and not real. It was in between Yogacara, in between Abhidharma, negated both schools but didn't negate them at all, accepted it, and looked at it clearly and said, this is the way things are. As opposed to what the Buddha taught, they're saying this is the way it is. And so in this way, in terms of looking at it, this Pratikasamapada also has another name. Alaya Vijnana, the Eighth Consciousness, Buddha Nature, the Tathagatha Garbha. That notion of cause and conditions never fail is Buddha Nature. And, and that's where it verged on from what's called the exoteric, which is actual teachings and clear, you can, you can read it, to the esoteric, where it's a step beyond these words. But it, but it fits. It fits in the concept in terms of it that cause and conditions never fail. So Pratikasamapada is just there. And let me read you something about that. The Salisatamba uh, Sutra says, Whosoever sees Pratikasamapada sees the Buddha, and whoever sees the Buddha sees the Dharma, the truth or reality. Nagarjuna, who was from the Madhyamika school, expresses himself similarly in the uh, Madhyamika uh, Karikas. One who perceives truly Pratikasamapada realizes the four sacred truths pain its cause cessation and path which is the four noble truths so pratikasamapada is the four noble truths it's very very interesting now we take from there what's happening and i know i've thrown a lot of concepts at, at you okay but just try to hang in there because all these concepts are the essence of Chan Buddhism the Buddha nature cause and conditions never fail the four noble truths all of these things are all fitting in there and so then we begin to look at things uh, um, the Yogacara school at that time was imported into Tibet, or I would say exported into Tibet, and became the Vajrayana school. And um, it was the Vishni, Vajnavada school at that time, but it ultimately came to the Vajrayana school that then split up into different groups. But Tibetan Buddhism and Chan Buddhism are not too far off. There may be different ways and different methods and stuff, but the principles there are very, very similar in terms of the foundational principles. Um, we're, we won't talk about Tibetan Buddhism today but because we're concentrating on where how it ended up in the Chan. 
And um, the the idea. Um, I'm trying not to to get too deep into some of the philosophy, but I think it's important um, in terms of how we look at it. I'm going to talk a little bit about. We, we had mentioned these these um, um, Tathagatha Garbha sutras, meaning all that means is just the Buddha nature. Sutras that emphasize the Buddha nature, and one of them was the uh, uh, Mahaprajnaparamita Sutra. And the one of the sutras, let's say, in the Mahaprajnaparamita Sutra is called the Heart Sutra, little tiny sutra that embodies the entire Mahayana teachings. And uh, last um, Monday I taught my class um, just the first line. It has everything in it. But it's important because we take a look at it historically and all of a sudden you're going to realize that it's not just a, a, a practice sutra, but it espouses doctrine and it's somewhat political. Um, the first line, when the great Bodhisattva of Alkitiswara, coursing the deep Prajna Paramita, perceived all five skanda were empty. First, when this sutra appears, this Mahaprajna Paramita Sutra, especially the Heart Sutra, we get this doctrinal statement. That's what the Heart Sutra is. It's saying, Theravadins, take a look at this. So now we're introduced to the great Bodhisattva of Avalokitesvara. That's different than from the Theravadin doctrine. So this is something new that's coming in. It's a Bodhisattva. What's a Bodhisattva? A Bodhisattva is one who makes a vow to deliver sentient beings before they're delivered. So now we've got this incredible shift in the orientation of the purpose of the practice from one that was more of a deliverance of oneself to the deliverance of all, which is consistent with the idea of Buddha nature that one would take care of all. It's very similar to that if you would cut your, your uh, left hand, your right hand would not say, tough break, you know, for you. It, no, the right hand would put a band-aid on the left hand. Why? Because it's necessary. It's all part of the same body. And we, as sentient beings, are all part of the same Buddha nature body. And as a result of that, this is why this doctrine works in terms of, of doing it. Why not? They're all part of that. If there is this suffering and we should take care of it. But the Heart Sutra goes even further than that. So it said that all five skanda are empty form, sensation, perception, volition, consciousness. Consciousness is empty. What you're thinking about is empty. Devoid of self. There's no self there. We always stop and say, because it says form is not an emptiness, emptiness is another form. We always think about that, but we never think about 
hey, what about consciousness? It says consciousness is empty too. What does that mean? So it changes the way we look at things. It really changes it in terms of how we see things. And we see all of a sudden that, that if this consciousness is empty, that means there's no self there. If there's no self there, then what's there? What could be there? So Mahayana Buddhism is introducing now this notion of emptiness. And this notion of emptiness is a notion that is not empty in a nihilistic way. It is empty of permanency. Cause and conditions never fail. There's a cause, there's for, there's a condition. Everything's constantly changing. Form is not an emptiness. Emptiness is not an form. Form is precisely emptiness. Precisely. Causes and conditions never fail. So it's showing the perfection of the mind. It's showing the perfection. It doesn't fail. Everything is in its place in accord with causes and conditions. And we're clear about that. And as one does an introspection of the mind, we realize consciousness is precisely empty. Whatever's arising in mind, it's there for a reason that it arose. And so they're espousing this. Now, very interesting point here coming up. So the very first line was saying that, um, that the five skandhas are empty, thereby transcending all suffering. The transcending is the transcendent wisdom, the right view realized. How things work, transcendent wisdom now comes into play, and this is the path for realization, the path for, for enlightenment, is this transcendent wisdom. Second line, very interesting. Anybody know the Heart Sutra? Who is the Avalokiteshvara addressing? Sariputra. Now, in the Mahayana text, does anybody know, this is bonus points if you know this, in the Diamond Sutra, who is the Buddha talking to? No, you almost have it. Sabuti, yeah, good, good. Sabuti. Why? Because Sabuti shows up in the Mahayana text. Now, Avalokiteshvara, who's being introduced in the Lotus Sutra, is now addressing Sariputra. Sariputra is directly related to the Abhidharma which is Theravada. So, Avalokiteshvara is saying, Sariputra, form is not other than emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. Form is precisely emptiness. Why are you talking about real? It's not real. It's a direct assault on the, the, uh, the Theravadans. What else does it go on to say? Theravadins held very closely what it was one of their major things that they held on the basic 
principles of Buddhism. What is it? Four Noble Truths. And what does the Heart Sutra say? There is no suffering, no cause of suffering, no cessation of suffering, and no path. That drove me crazy when I first started practicing. I say, why the heck does that say that? How can that say that when they say it's the Four Noble Truths, and then they're saying there's no Noble Truths? I want to know why. Well, now I know. And they're saying, Sariputra, there's no... There is no suffering, no cause of suffering. So what are you talking about in the Abhidharma? You see how it fits now? It's a very interesting um, position statement that the Mahayanas are saying. There is no wisdom nor any attainment. Bodhisattvas, having no obstructions in their mind, attain anyatara samyaksam bodhi the highest wisdom the transcendent wisdom it is real and it's not false it's unexcelled mantra right they're saying hey this is it this is the highest now you understand why the heart sutra says what it says you will never read it or say it again without knowing what it means so if anything, this is a payoff because in the Heart Sutra you will remember everything that I said here today because it's all in there. It is a position statement. A good position statement. It's not bad. It's not something... It, it, it was, let's say, a shot towards the Theravadans, but it, it's a clarification of, of what is there in terms of the Buddhist practice. Theravadins have their way, Mahayanas have their way, and they're espousing the idea that in the Buddha nature, and, and I really hesitate to call it Buddha nature because it's not nature like, oh, he's some Buddha nature. It's more the idea that it, there's nothing that isn't the Buddha nature. Therefore, it's empty. Pratikasamapada, they all fit together, what, however you want to call it. And it sets forth that doctrine very clearly. And if one practices in this way, then one will be a good Mahayana practitioner. Because we see the things clearly. What it's doing is it's presenting right view to you. The right view meaning how mind works. And saying, if you practice this way, you will get right view realize transcendent wisdom and so so this is how one practices and one sees we we take away the idea there is no suffering no cause of suffering you know there's no aging through to no aging and death all of those things are all taken away why because they're all part of the dharmakaya they're all part of the, the buddha body everything that you see around you even false notions are part of the Buddha body. And when you see things in this way, it makes things very clear. Are there any questions? You guys are looking a little bit like deer in the headlights. Yes. I thought it would be nice to have a uh, project, a terminology, some brief explanation that will not be get lost up that fast. This is for me wise. I thought about them, for example, I thought about them. Okay, what does it relate to? When you talk about conscious only, then we get, we 
get the concept. But when they're throwing so many terminologies on the loss, I can't follow. Yeah. It, this is just a kind of, a, let's say, an exposure to all of this. For me to try to explain the concepts of these in detail, if, if I wanted to even explain the very beginning of Yogacara to you, the first stanza of, of it, I could take weeks doing that. So it's okay if you don't understand completely. Uh, I didn't expect you to understand as much as to, to give you an orientation, like you're going down a car lot saying, this is this kind of a car, this one, this one, but you don't really know completely how it works. It's too much for you at this point, but it's an invitation to you to look into it. And, and your question is a fair question, uh, and I don't mean to demean it, it's just difficult because I'm explaining in a very quick whirlwind way these schools and their their essence of their thought, for instance, the Yogacara school saying consciousness only. And and that's very, very deep. I mean, some of the books on the Yogacara school are, I think I have one that's maybe 1,200 pages of fine print. And um, so, you know, it's very, very detailed things. But what I wanted to do is, is show you how these schools related how they popped up and in terms of how they now are where Chan comes from is from this background it just didn't come from Theravadan but it came through it was it was moved through China and was working its way through and these schools of, of the Madhyamika school and the little sub schools of it and why Chan is so good why it cuts clearly because of we were using the prasangita method of reducing things down and and being able to kind of cut where, where we get the idea of, of the Vajra sword and when you look at let's say the Diamond Sutra that's what the Diamond Sutra is doing it's cutting all the way through any concepts. So I understand what you're saying, and it's it's a difficult thing, you know, uh, in terms of it, because I'm throwing many, many schools and a few thousand years of, of, of exposure of things, but I didn't want you necessarily to become an expert in the Yogacara school, it's just to see roughly where these fit. I know there's a lot of names and a lot of things, and, and forgive me for that, but you know, even my pages of definitions would be pages long to do that. But the essence of what I want you to take away is the idea of Mahayana con concepts, the ideas of emptiness, of the Bodhisattva, of the, the Buddha nature. Uh, th those are, are key points in terms of our practice. And as it gets down to Chan, we understand that there's also this understanding of, for instance, like from Mahakasyapa, the twirling of the flower, there's something beyond words. And so this is what I want you to take. So don't panic that you that you, you can't pick that up. I never intended you to understand. I'm not going to give you a test on, on what, you know, a prasangita is, okay? But just a, an exposure, just in a, kind of like a very quick, okay, here's how it went, and you... you uh, you know, you, you get an idea, it migrated over to China, and then how it comes down and and um, going to Chan. So, I'm sorry about that, but don't panic with that, okay? Just kind of 
get a feeling of the essence of it so that you begin to understand what John is and where it came from. That's, that's the most important thing is from all of these schools. But I, I, my intention was not to try to teach you about the schools in detail. That, that, believe me, the, the Abhidharma would take probably years to teach you. Honestly, I've been studying the Abhidharma for, for many years and, and I still consider myself a beginner. Yes. Basically, the Heart Sutra, even when you said sensation, you know, when it goes into sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness, it's refuting the consciousness-only school as well. I say the last part. It's refuting the consciousness-only school by by saying emptiness includes sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. Quite so. Quite so. So what it's saying is it's saying no. It's not even consciousness. You know, so it's it's taking a stab towards that way yeah. in terms of, of towards the yoga char school, and and saying that's not quite right. It because all of those things are fundamentally part of the the Buddha nature, the the Buddha body, yeah. and and again I hate to use that word. That's why I use the words, but then you get freaked out if I say Tathagatha Garba because you go, oh my God, what that is Tathagatha Garba, you know. But it's really the Buddha womb. And, and the idea that everything is within that and nothing, nothing separate. And so, the, so all of these notions are the notions of emptiness. But yeah, you're exactly correct. And as you begin to see it, then now you're picking up how to, how to look at it. And all of a sudden you go, wow, look at that. Look at what it's saying here. And, and what it's doing is it's setting out Mahayana practice, but it's also distinguishing it from the practice and taking its little jabs uh, along the way in terms of it. So, so the, the schools were kind of jockeying for their positions in terms of how to do it. Therabons were pushing back and they were saying, you know, we're the only school, don't pay attention to them. And, and the, the Mahayana school say, you want to talk. And, um, and that's where, where it ends because because they were so good at refutation. They were really, really good at that and, and looking at this. And, and, and they did a very, very good job of presenting things and, and advancing this in a way where it maintained um, an, an ability to, to stay afloat. You know, when, when sometimes when you do patch jobs, it doesn't work very well and in Christianity they did a lot of patch jobs in it and and it didn't really work very well and um, um, and if you don't pay attention to it then it's okay but um, but if you look at it then then you um, it's a problem there was a, a professor from North Carolina University Bart Ehrman that I was following his books in a progression of books analyzing the Bible and the history around it. And ultimately he no longer was a Christian as he began to look at it. And and I, I keep looking at Buddhism the same way and I'm going, I wonder if I end up in the same place. So we'll see. So far so good, but I, I do have my questions somewhere along the line too. Okay, any other questions? I don't have a question, but like a thought popped in my head when you were talking about, uh, I'll use a big word, tapa gata garba. You got it. <laughs> and that 
it's the Buddha womb, and it's not a place where just a singular place, mm-hmm. but it's all, all things. It's the entirety of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I watch a lot of read a lot of science, and when you think about the universe, there's nothing beyond the universe. The everything is in the universe, but there's nothing beyond it. It just is. So there's nothing on the outside of it, just like there's nothing. What is that? Else. Nothing beyond the universe. Nothing exists. There's not like a barrier. You get bump up against the end of the universe, and then there's an end, and there's nothing or something. It's there's no boundary. Would that nothing be part of the universe then? Yes. Okay. So it's a, a non-dualistic concept that. Like, I could travel a straight line forever and ever and ever, and I wouldn't bump into a wall. There's no end. It's infinity. Yeah. From the science point of view. That's from what I've been reading about. And, you know. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because I, I remember playing one of the first, like, games uh, with my son, and it was like this game where you're on a like a, a motorcycle and you're in the desert and all of a sudden you came to a point and you hit boom and it stopped and you're going what the heck you know and the the game in the or the universe in that game stopped right there and there's this wall there it's interesting because the quantum physicists have a way of, of describing that and um, one of them must have been hungry at the time but he said that the that the universe or reality is kind of like a taco that folds over onto itself. No, and that's the best they could come up with in terms of, of how to look at it. But if we have this taco that folds up into itself, then out here, what's that? You know, that nothing can't be just nothing. So it's really interesting. But quantum physicists and Buddhists have the same way of looking at things sometimes. And so, yeah, that's what you should be thinking about. Your search in the practice of meditation and Chan is not consciousness, it's mind. What is mind? Not consciousness. Remember? I don't know if I told you this before, but it's very important for you to remember this, is that sages return consciousness to mind. Fools turn mind into consciousness. If we think that we think, therefore, that's mind, that's a foolish notion. And that's what the Mahayanas were doing. They were looking at it and going, "Uh uh-uh, it's not consciousness. can't be consciousness. Because if it's conscious, then where did that go to? That's why the the Tathagathagarbha or the Buddha nature is so essential in it because they're missing that part in in the Yogacara school. They're missing that idea of this wonderful Buddha nature that houses the consciousness. And it, it's very, very important. And so it's interesting. Once Shifu was talking, and, and I've told this story here before, but it fits as he was talking about a, the practice as being this plate and it had dust on it. And you, you, you practice, and each time you practice, you blow the dust off until finally the plate is very, very clear. And he said, how do you like my, 
my definition. And everybody's going, yeah, that's a very good definition. That was good. Yeah, I like that idea. And I raised my hand. I said, Shifu, where did the dust go? And he looked at me and he goes, this is so stupid. Why do you, why you do that? You ruined my perfect example. Where does the dust go? So he was, you know, he was mocking me, but he actually he wasn't mocking me. You know, he knew exactly what I meant. And he was testing people to see what, what they would say. The idea is, there's no place the dust can go, no place the plate can go. It's all the same. It's all clear. And, and that's where you're at right now. You're just like dancing on the rim like that. You just have to drop yourself straight right into that too, into what they call the void. So you do that by thinking outside the box like you're doing. Okay, the box of consciousness. So, so this is the purpose of what I'm talking about. It's not just simply to give you a historical le lesson. That, that's of no value. But what's of value is, is understanding how Mahayana practice evolved and, and, and the reason that it evolved, why it makes sense in terms of, of its practice. And, and just like you were saying, oh, that's, they were negating the, the yoga charts. Well, yeah, that's what they're doing. Now you're beginning to think like a practitioner. That's good. Any other questions so far? Yes? So, it's one of the essence of Zen is like beyond the, there's something beyond the word. Just the, there's something cannot be delivered from word. Like, there's something beyond words? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting because there was a, um, one master, he was telling his, his young student, he says, actually, I have nothing to teach you. And so the, the young monk, he went, he went, but Shifu, you know, if you have nothing to teach me, what do I learn from you? And he said, you learn from me until you realize I have nothing to teach you. And it's that way, is that, that we, we still have to practice, we still have to study, but the studying itself brings us to that realization. So we can enter the principle, we can enter realization from principle or practice or both. And it's better to do both of them, principle and practice. Principle being the studying and looking into it. And as you begin to study it, you'll find that, that there'll be points where you have kind of an aha moment. They're tiny little realizations. But you add those all up and they count. You know, you were studying the Abhidharma and I'm sure you, there's a couple of times when you go, ah, I see this, I don't quite understand it, but this is pretty interesting. And when, when you look at something like that, it begins to be money in the bank. So, so we keep studying with the idea that these words, uh, they, they will not bring us there, but without them, it's not possible for us to to get there, so we, we still study, we keep studying. And what they do is that they they tune the mind, they, I should say they tune consciousness and tune the mind into a resonance, you know, a resonance like a tuning fork. Boom. And, and though, by looking into the principle, looking into the principle, it's like the mind's like a tuning fork, and, and it tunes 
so that one no longer is paying attention to the the static of the consciousness but is being drawn to the tuning of, of the fort the sound of the of the fort which is the true nature and 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 little by little one is absorbed into that true nature why because we never existed to begin with so we just return back to where we're at in fact right this moment the very mind you're using is the buddha mind if you could realize that in this moment then all of the questions would be answered for you doesn't mean you stop practicing but you start practicing in it in sincerity because then in that moment you see that that that's clear okay any other questions or did that answer your question or no any other questions none from the back yes I'd like your comment about this uh, professor and also your comment about yourself um, with the Buddhism maybe um, turning to a numberist can turn into what to a non-Buddhist, or a Christian can become a non-Christian, whatever. I like the attitude very much. And yeah. At times I feel, I like I like to study a lot, but not like to practice more. Because then it gets nowhere to try to compare theory-wise. And, and maybe I'm not at a level, the wisdom level yet. But to me, you have to have a um, comparable, something repeatable, some theory or algorithm from a scientific training-wise. But instead of going to lengthy discussion and then there's no assumption set in concrete place, it gets nowhere. It's a waste of time, but a long time thing. A simple concept, but I get to lengthy talking about different things, now we live and get back to single points. It, it all depends on how one does it. And, and your question is a valid question, or comment is a valid question. The thing is, is that if one just simply acquires it like a librarian, then one is just simply acquiring knowledge without anything else. And it's, of, it's worthless. It's like you're holding the, the knowledge for other people. If you put it into practice and investigate it, the, the key here is investigation. You have to investigate and be almost like a quantum physicist to look at it and look at it and see it and just keep thinking about, about it. But when you think about it, you're thinking, you're putting into principle what you've, been, what you've learned. Then it will work. If you use it just simply for debate purposes or to distinguish things, then it's of no value. I agree with you. I once had one one person come to my um, my class in Riverside, and he had previously had emailed me and said, "Oh, um, I, I would really like to sit down and chat with you." And I went, "Uh oh." And so he came to my class and didn't say a word during my class. Just and then after the class, he came up to me. And he said, you said such and such, and you said such and such, but actually so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said that, you know. 
And I said, yes, they're right in their context. I'm, I'm, in my context, I used it in the, in the correct way. And he said, and so-and-so, and so and I said, you know what, to you, um, I said, you shouldn't practice because the Dharma is shit. And he said, what? You said that the Dharma is shit? I said, not to me, to you. Because the way you, you talk about it, it's useless. Because you're just simply trying to to distinguish this and distinguish that. And I'm not saying that about you, by the way. Uh, what I'm trying to do is encourage you to investigate. So if you investigate, it's, it's not worthless. It's very valuable. It's very important. So it's how you use it. That's why I'm here, not simply just to give you a, a history lesson, but for you to use this in your in your your practice, and tomorrow you'll see how we incorporate this into the practice. You want to say something? Go ahead. I was just going to comment one thing that uh, we try to make a um, try to understand or make a uh, progress. Um, but on the other hand, uh, someone made a comment: you can't pull yourself out of the ground here. You know, it doesn't work that way. That's right. So uh, you say, this effort this is efforts useless. The you can't pull yourself out of the ground, but you can make yourself disappear. There's a difference. We had a question or a comment. Yeah. You said before that the teacher said I have nothing to, to teach you. Okay, now there's three interpretations of that. <laughs> nothing to teach you, there is no knowledge, there's no nothing, and so I can't, there's, um, there's a second interpretation, which is I have nothing to teach you, you have to learn it all yourself, and I'm just being here, being patient with you while you're, you're trying to get there, um, and then there's potentially other ones, I get a third interpretation coming in my mind, and what, what that I can remember right now, but I'm kind of curious as to what you're what is the rest of that? that, that yeah, the, I'll, I will answer it with Well, you are perfect. That's the third one. I have nothing to teach you because you're already perfect, but you're going to have to figure that out on your own. That's the third interpretation. I, I will answer you with a Chan story. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I remember <laughs> there was this young um, monk, very young little little monk, you know, and he was in the master's uh, chambers and he was dusting off the, the shelves and stuff. And and one, um, uh, all of a sudden, they heard like, and and at the door, just come in, and that was one of the monks stalking him. And he said, what's the matter with you? And he says, well, I was having a debate with with monk so-and-so, and, and he said this, and I said that, and and so we were arguing about it, and, and I want to know, you know, who's right. And so, so he says, uh, "You're right." He goes, and and he walks out, and all of a sudden he hears, you know, it's the other one, and he comes in, says the same thing. I want to know who's right, who's right. And so so the little monks, he's dusting, going, "Oh oh," because he already said the other one's right. And so, so then the master says, you're right. And he goes, huh? And so the little monk goes, huh? So the other one 
he's so happy he walks out and and he he then he goes to the the, the young little monk goes in front of the the master shifu shifu you know when this monk came in you say he's right when this monk came in you say he's right he says but they can't be both right and the master said you're right <laughs> so that's my answer to you <laughs> I know sorry it's the best answer I can give you but you're working on it right <laughs> okay any other questions alright I haven't even gotten the chan yet <laughs> I'll, I'll throw you a bombshell in a moment okay I will explain to you is that because uh, the time is now coming short is all of these things got, got um, molded into the Chan school and the Chan school was dealing with meditation and that's where we started at from the very beginning when Shakyamuni was meditating we've got meditation here the Chan school is a school it's not about meditation per se it's about right view and if we have right view, when we sit on the cushion, meditation can pay off. When we are walking around, right view pays off. Master Shenyang said, meditation is worthless. He said that with the idea that if one does not apply right view, simply crossing your legs will not get you somewhere he said you're just practicing your legs you're practicing good to sit cross-legged but you're not practicing chan chan is applying right view to meditation so that one is clear about what's happening in any given moment and we see things in, in, a, in a way now I'm going to ask you a question who is a sixth patriarch How many of you think Huayneng was the sixth patriarch? Raise your hand. I'm, you, guessing, I'm guessing, yes. You're guessing? <laughs> you see, the problem with him is he goes, this is a Chan trick, I know it. <laughs> is he the sixth patriarch or not? It is, okay. Well, Shen Shu is the sixth patriarch. Does anybody know who Shen Shu was? Who is Shen Shu? Shen Shu is uh, actually the formal the student by the, the fifth patriarch. And uh, they have debate with, uh, uh, you know, the, and then so it seems like his, his answer is not as perfect as uh, the winner. Okay. So goes the story. And there's so I forgot who said it, but uh, to the victories they write the history. So the Shen Shu was actually the sixth patriarch, and 
he had he came from the northern school which was a school which was designed to practice and and um and perfect your practice using morals and and um and in accordance with the Huaining school southern school not to let any dust alight on your mirror and so which actuality in actuality that whole poem was mis misinterpreted um, at least the second line of, of Shen Shu's but Shen Hui which we don't know about bonus points anybody knows who Shen Hui is was Hui Neng's disciple and Hui Neng's disciple said you know what Shen Shu really wasn't the sixth patriarch Hui Neng was and so he engaged in a campaign to undercut Shen Shu, who had already been recognized as a sixth patriarch. And he went to the emperor and politicked and politicked in different places he politicked. And ultimately, Hui Neng became the sixth patriarch. See, that's how much we know about Buddhism. So we should not just look at Huen, or Shen Shu and go, ah, he was wrong. No. Shen Shu's practice was good practice. And it's consistent with Chan. And so was Huen Eng's. The spin they put on it was different. And that spin was there so that there was no question after the, the Platform Sutra that that uh, Hui Neng was the victor, or excuse me, the sixth patriarch. So, in any case, nothing wrong with Hui Neng. Hui Neng's dharmas, it, I, I love it. I, I love, you know, depending on who wrote it, because we don't even know exactly really who wrote it. But the, um, but the dharma that's attributable to, to Hui Neng is, is very, very good. So, it's an interesting point because I, I kind of throw this out at the end as like one of those shocker ones because it's like uh, you run into this and then and when you see something like this you just go well wait a second you know when we practice we practice in, in a way where we study and we understand things and we, we understand things very clearly today I was reading something about a misinterpretation that a Japanese uh, master or, or pilgrim um, took back to Japan about how to practice and and so when he he took something back to practice they misinterpreted the the, the language there and so the way they misinterpreted it was that he was saying that the master should yell at the students. So there's one sect that the master yells at the students. But it was a misinterpretation about about that and it had nothing to do with yelling at the students. But there it is. And now from time immemorial, Japanese masters will yell at their students. And so it's interesting. The reason I bring it up is just because the study of the history of what you're learning is important as well. 
so that we just don't take everything with a grain of salt. I don't mean this to undermine your faith, but to develop your faith stronger in what you practice. So in terms of looking at this and saying, okay, this is a Mahayana school, I accept that and I can take that and know I haven't become a non-Buddhist yet in terms of what I've looked at. If somebody uncovers something that was something really egregious or something or something I cannot follow, then fine. Up until this point in my life, the Buddhist practice makes more sense than anything else I've, I've practiced. And um, the thought of just simply being an atheist with no belief system, I think, doesn't work very well. At least it doesn't work in China right now. Um, and I think so. I never want to take people away from any of their belief system, whether it's Christian or, or, or Buddhist or whatever religion. No, I think a faith system is important, but we, we approach it with our eyes open. And, and that's what I was doing today, is letting you know from where it comes from, why things are that way. And, and it's just a very brief sketch of running through the course of time to, to get to, to this moment right now. Any last questions? No? All right, well, I want to thank you for listening very carefully. And you really did listen, and I appreciate that. And um, it's something that tomorrow I will be teaching um, the way to meditate and, and essentially isolating out certain components of meditation to practice discreetly apart from the others and then in the end putting them all together so that all of a sudden you understand all these things should be there in a proper meditation practice and I've had very good luck or not luck success in terms of um, of uh, using this method with other other groups and they found uh, it to be very very helpful in terms of advancing their ability to understand the method and, and being able to sit um, without being um, uh, vexed by too many uh, distracting thoughts. Any last question? No? Joint palms. Thank you.